much horror business Driving late at night Psycho 78 12 o'clock Don't be late I said all this horror business Greetings and salutations My name is Justin Lore, And I'm Liam O'Donnell And you are listening to episode 81 of I was going to try to do like an Ernest Borgnine Amish accent. Oh, yeah? Thou's listening to episode 81 of Har Business. Har Business. And on this episode, we are talking about 1981's uh, secret Wes Craven Michael Berryman vehicle, (laughs) Deadly Blessing, and 1982's The Slayer. Unfortunately, not as good as the Refuse song of the same name. Sure. Do you think... Why did you say Deadly Blessing was a secret Wes Craven film? I don't know because it's not one of them. It's not like one of the more well-known Wes Craven films, like Wes Deadly Craven. Friend. Oh, Deadly <laughs> Friend! <laughs> part of, we we should have done a Deadly double feature. A Deadly Deadly Wes Craven double feature. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, when it comes to remembering Wes Craven's legacy. People mostly go, well, there's a uh, Last House on the Left and uh, Hills Have Eyes and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and then uh, Scream. That's it, right? And you're like, oh, man, he just kept making movies between those movies. Yeah, he made a lot of great movies between them. People Under the Stairs, That's They, true. Serpent in the Fucking Rainbow, Shocker. Uh, Shocker. Shocker is terrible. Shocker. Okay, sorry. Uh, Shocker is fine. You know what movie is not fine? House 3, the horror show, with, um, what's his name? Um, Why are you talking about House 3? Because I, I thought for the long time, that longest time, as the, a plot that's almost identical to Shocker, uh, I thought that movie was Shocker. See, I watched Shocker recently, uh, filled with nostalgia, because I loved it when I was a kid, and I got the Blu-ray, and I popped it in all stoked. Yay, Shocker! And then I started watching it, and I was like, this movie is Really bad. <laughs> oh, he also made Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> I actually think Vampire in Brooklyn's better than people say. Fair enough. I mean, okay, let's put it this way, actually. I need to rewatch it, but my memory of it at the time was mostly positive. And people being like, it's the worst thing. I'm like, is it the worst thing ever? I don't know about that. Yeah. I'm going to have to rewatch it. He made my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Nightmare on Elm Street? Yes. Yes. Well, and that's... A New Nightmare. Oh, yeah! I forgot that you're a big New Nightmare person. I'm a huge big. I am a huge New Nightmare person. I'm. Uh, I like New Nightmare, but I, I think I'm a OG and then a Part Three. Psh. Part Three is very good. It's good. It's very. Good. It's okay. I think I'm a OG Part Three Part Two. I think I rewatched Four, and it's actually pretty good. I think someone cajoled me to rewatch Four. And it's not as bad as I remember. Part five is awful, and I saw it in the theaters. Same with part six. Terrible. Saw it in the theater when it came out. I think part six was so bad that even little kid me was like, I think this is a bad movie. Yeah, I, I remember when the animatronic, or like not animatronic, when the very badly animated Dream Demon showed up, and I was yeah. like, now this movie sucks. <laughs> like the, now it, I can say that I could. I'm comfortable. In I feel. I feel comfortable that. Yeah. putting that out there. Sure. So enough about Wes Craven's filmography. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by you, our Patreon subscribers. We thank you so much for any and all contributions you've made. You people make this possible without making Liam and I 
go to the poorhouse. Um, if you want, really quick, I have to think. We have two new Johns. Yes, two new John. Two. Can are Johns people? Can yeah, Johns sure. be okay? <laughs> uh, John one, Chris reject. Oh, I know, horrifying. Jesus but we'll take that money though. <sighs> we'll take that money. Yeah. And then second, uh, Eddie Yarich. Yarich. What up? Sup? I think he's been tweeting about us too. Yeah, like, I appreciate that. Yeah, we appreciate you. And honestly, that's how people get to know about the show is because y'all tell them. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a ton of money for advertisements, and even if we had a little bit of money for advertisements, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, advertising for podcasts doesn't it doesn't work very well. It doesn't no. like get a huge audience. In. No. Word of mouth is the only way. Yeah. So thank you if you've if you've subscribed, if you've shared, if you've retweeted, anything like that. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to say for the easily six week in a row, we do have stuff on its way for you guys. Um, yeah. So just hold tight and you'll have some cool shit in the way. And if you want to, if you want to become a patron, www.patreon.com backslash Cinebunks. This episode is also brought to you by Chris Reject and the other people who work at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, the Lehigh Valley's premier screen printing company. Um, Liam, if I said to you, I want to get a t-shirt made that says Ted Nugent should be barbecued alive. <laughs> I shouldn't find that as funny as I do. Where would you suggest I get that T-shirt made? Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, X L V A C X dot com. They'll do a good job at a reasonable price. Chris Reject values providing excellent customer service and doing a good job, doing a great job, more than he values making money. So, or friendship, or friendship, or his family. I'm not going to touch that with a knife pole. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to go ahead and... <laughs> I'm not going to ask Jacob to edit my response out, but, you know, to which thou will, Jacob. Um, yeah, so www.xlvacx, if you have a podcast or a band or a fucking band that plays on podcasts, or you're a professional wrestler who hasn't been accused of some horrible, horrible thing... What few of you there are left. What few good, pure professional wrestlers there are left... I'm looking at you, Ultra Mantis Black. Yeah. Go to, but you already know about Chris Reject, so there's no point. If you're, just go to fucking xlvacx.com and look up more information on them. xlvacx.com. Now. Yeah. Comes the time. When I have a dream about me being an adult in a somewhat unhappy marriage. And I go to an island, and I, I ask Liam, Liam, have you done anything recently involving horror? And then I wake up as a child, and I have dreamt my entire life. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, I know what you're referencing. Yes. Unfortunately, the rest of you will soon, too, if you, don't <laughs> already, if you haven't already watched this. Um, unfortunately, I have to say, not much. As you know, I have begun but have not finished Scream Queen. Yes. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the documentary about uh, his thing, Mark Patton. Yes, I think Mark Patton, not Mike Patton. Right. It's a documentary about Mark Patton, who was the star of Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, and who sort of famously is uh, maybe the only, but it, certainly the first uh, male scream queen, basically. Um, and the documentary sort of talks about how this film came out. It was a big deal. It made a lot of money. It should have been the beginning of a 
huge career for him, especially he was very connected. He wasn't an unknown. That's the thing I think I didn't know that the documentary sort of helped me know. I knew a little bit because when I saw him live, but I didn't know before I saw him talk about it in person. He was a kind of a big deal. You know, he had been in, um, uh, what's it, what is it? Uh, what, come back to the five minute dime jimmy dean jimmy dean you know this i don't know that movie it was a play directed by robert altman that then he turned into a film okay starring Cher. ah i know Cher and karen black i know who karen black is and other people you would know whose names are escaping me but it was like a huge hit on lars ulrich stop it was a huge hit on broadway and it was it made so much money they like had to make the movie yeah he's in it he was in it on broadway and he's in the film so he was like a big deal and this role was like his crossover. He had done some other stuff too, commercials and stuff. And yeah. He was in some other movies. But this role was like his crossover to like the youth market. Like, mm. I'm in these things, but that's a certain, you know, the people seeing the latest Robert Altman play to movie are not the same people seeing Night Run Off Street 2. So this should have been like his explosion. Keep in mind, y'all, Night Run Elm Street was a fucking phenomena. Yes. Not only did it make all the money it was critically acclaimed like anyone who liked horror movies at the time like if you gave every horror movie a bad review you probably give it a bad review but almost everyone who gave positive reviews to horror movies liked this movie like it was considered an amazing film it's a it, people when, when, when people think about a night around Elm street at this point in time like right now critically or um from a fan point from a fan uh fan's point of view they're thinking of the franchise as a whole. The kind of silly, right. goofy, right. you know. But people tend to forget that that first Nightmare on Elm Street film is actually legitimately critically acclaimed. It's viewed as like a legitimate film. To me, I mean, okay, we were just joking around about Wes Craven's career, which I think is kind of spotty. But he legitimately made, in my mind, four, at least four, groundbreaking films. What are they? Uh, Last House on the Left. Yes. The Hills Have Eyes. Okay. Nightmare on Elm Street. Scream. Nightmare on Elm Street. A New Nightmare. Serpent in the Rainbow. People Under the Stairs. And Cursed. You forgot those. There's eight. He made eight legitimately good films. No, I eight. didn't say. And then I didn't nine. say legitimately. I didn't say legitimately good. I said groundbreaking in what they accomplished. I will in fact argue, upon revisit, Scream is bad, but Scream shaped our culture. Scream was a phenomena. It is like uh, it is a film that defined where horror was going yeah. for the next twenty years, and so uh, even though now I have rewatched Scream twice in the hopes that like I'll get why millennials still worship at its altar, and no, it's bad. It's not. I mean, the only thing I the, honestly, the only thing I like about it is I still. I, and it's weird. I don't know why because I like Matthew Lillard, even though I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I don't know if there's any any one of his movies, and I'm like, yeah, it's a good movie. No, all of them are bad. But he himself, I'm always like, I like him. He's never the worst part of the movie. No. Yeah, he's the best part of that. He's movie. The, yeah, yeah, he really I mean, is. Nev Campbell's fine. I, I think people shit on her performance, and I don't think that's fair. I think she's fine, but he is so good, and he's way better than what's his name, Skeet Ulrich. Who's which one was Skeet Ulrich? The main guy. No, the dude who kept going on, who's Dewey. What's his name? David Duchovny? No. <laughs> no, David Arquette. David Arquette. I think he's so much better than David Arquette, and David Arquette became like one of the pillars. I mean, obviously, Matthew Lillard couldn't become a pillar of the franchise because he dies. Yeah. But but I'm saying, like, 
people remember David Arquette's performance. Yeah. And it's just fine. It's okay. Matthew Lillard is so good in that first movie, but it's not a good movie. No. What I was saying all that wasn't to have a discussion about Wes Craven's best movies. It's to say he made four films that I think had a definable impact on the culture. Okay. And yet, for me, Nightmare on Elm Street is better than all of his like that for me is the pinnacle of Wes Craven. I love People Under Stairs. I love Serpent in the Rainbow. Nightmare on Elm Street for me is like, I mean, okay, it was my first horror movie, so that's a little unfair. There's that, yeah, other horror movies, but I still think there's imagery in that film that is just like fucking nightmare fuel that I don't know where it came from. On, that, on a Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Absolutely. That goes beyond anything he had done to that point. Because it's not like A Night on Elm Street is like, oh, well, I'm just getting into this thing. He is an accomplished director at this point, even if not all of his stuff is great. I think some of the stuff before A Night on Elm Street is bad, actually. But A Night on Elm Street is such a singular event of like, holy shit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So all that, that, that we're not talking about A Night on Elm Street. What we're talking about is how that huge success meant being in the sequel was not like a, oh, whatever, I got a job on Harvey. This is a big fucking deal. Yeah. You know, it was a huge deal. And it premiered on like every theater in New York. Times Square was billboards everywhere for it. It was a huge thing to be in it. Um, and for those of you who don't know, it was the end of his career because basically the film has what you could call, if you wanted to be slightly obtuse, a gay subtext. Subtext. Scare quotes is what Justin just did around subtext because the reality is it's a lot in the movie. And um, whatever, I, I, I'm not one of these neck beard jerk offs living in their mom's basement who's like, it's so gay, it makes it bad. I would argue I love all of the uh, homoerotic themes of the, the film. best part of the movie. But. I don't think that everyone was ready for that. It's certainly a departure from the first movie. It's it's it is a I think it has two things going for it. One is the thing that the documentary focuses on a little bit more, which is the uh homoerotic themes in the film. I think also it's a departure from the first movie. It goes in a new direction. A new direction that could have been interesting, but audiences even though the movie this is one of those weird things. The movie made a ton of money, but the audience response to the movie was weirdly negative, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I think the the thing about it is the combo of the negative uh, response to the film that the fans didn't love it, and then the performance that Mark gave was considered so gay that his agents really were like, "We we got to reform your image right now, or you're not going to get any more roles." <laughs> and uh, as the film sort of highlights, the movie comes out right at the height. Or not the hype, but like the real spark off of the gay panic when the combo of our general conservatism around sex and sexuality combined with the plague that was AIDS, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, gay people—they're unnatural monsters!" And they, you know, and and that's not to say things weren't hard before then, but if if you weren't alive, it's hard to understand how the culture had started to take a turn. It had started to be like, you know, maybe it's not so bad, guys. But the uh, the mixture, the heady mixture of Reagan's New Light in America bullshit, Ugh. the rise of evangelical conservatism, and uh, this this honestly plague, which, by the way, is why I suspect the U.S. released the plague into the gay community as a way to whatever. But it doesn't matter. Point being, 
it was not a good time to be suddenly in a huge movie that everyone saw that everyone was like, oh, that guy seems gay. That was like not good for his career. And it ended up ending his career. He just disappeared. He just went away. What does he do now? So uh, they only found him because of they were making that really long Nightmare on Elm Street documentary. No one had heard of, from him since then. He was living in Mexico, running like a shop. He lived on a dirt road. He was totally off the grid. The makers of that other documentary basically hired a private detective to find him. That's amazing. And he had been entirely off the grid. And so they hit him up. He finally is like, well, I guess if people still care about these movies, I'll do the documentary. And this is now, for those of you who don't know, this is not the documentary that I'm watching. This is the documentary that they did about the whole Never Run Tree yeah. called Never Sleep Again. Well, Mark had not been paying attention. And what he discovered was that uh, the pressure he had felt when he left acting had not dissipated when it came to that movie. So what I mean by that is, you would think now, whatever years later, you're not paying attention, you don't even know what's going on in American culture, you've been living in Mexico for whatever amount of time. You think, well, no one cares, right? And what he discovered is two things. One, some people did care. In fact, there was a large gay fandom that had developed around the movie. Well, that's important to him as a gay man. He thinks that's really great. But he also noticed the huge fucking backlash against him mm-hmm. that that most people's evaluation of the movie over time actually had nothing to do with the quality of the film. It had to do with him being, again, quote unquote, because this is not a real thing, so gay. Basically that his performance and the homoerotic themes of the film just made all these uptight straight people uncomfortable and his realization of that made him want to get out there and like set the fucking record straight hell yeah and also he discovered how much the screenwriter had been shit talking him in the media like yeah basically every time this dude was asked about gay subtext he blamed it on mark it just was like like legit a legitimate quote in the film that he gave in an interview was actually the film was written more with a homophobic viewpoint but uh the casting was so specific that that performance gave a tinge to the film that really kind of ruined what it was about hmm oh fuck you man i mean the in the i just want to be really clear if anyone is tired of hearing the term gaslighting because they don't understand it, and they really want to know what the term means. The obvious place to start is the film Gaslight, because that's where it comes from. Yes. However, if you're looking for a more contemporary version, may I recommend to you Scream Queen, the documentary that I'm discussing, because the guy literally admits that there was always gay subtext, and he just lied about it because it was fun for him. Basically gaslighting this dude. you know, And America, the whole country's going... I don't know, man. It seems like you wrote a gay movie. And he's like, no, oh, I don't know what you guys are talking about. That must be you. That's on you. Yeah, it's you. You're the one when he goes to the leather bar with all those men. Yeah. That's you. What do you see? You're saying when the gym teacher gets whipped in the ass, you find that to be homoerotic? That's very. Yeah. You find the scene where he goes to an actual gay bar. Right. Homoerotic? It looks, it looks like you're the one who's got some demons to, to, to wrestle. My favorite part about it in the documentary, well, not my favorite part, one of the things I like about the documentary is they talk to the actor who played the coach. And you're like, you know, he's seeing any homoerotic things. Yeah, he yeah. Goes, he's like, I know I should have, but no, I didn't at all. I Like, it didn't even occur to me. And then it was in the, well, I forget what news, it was a gay newspaper in New York. They named it the gayest horror movie ever. Perhaps the first gay horror wait, movie. Wait, wait, wait. He said he didn't know he was. it was like a gay scene? He legitimately says... I didn't realize it. It didn't even occur to me. But then I read about it in a gay He's paper. He's a fucking liar. Well, then what he said He's was... He's a fucking liar. Well, well, this is what I think is so funny about it, because 
he says that, right? He's like, it just didn't really occur to me that that's what was going on. He's like, but then I read it in the paper. In this paper, they called it maybe the first gay horror movie. And I thought, oh, that's fucking great. Maybe I can get like some gay roles now. Like he was like so stoked on it. And I thought, well, that's funny. Like that's a dude who just like the way it comes across in the movie, at least he's just an idiot. And then when he found out, instead of being like bummed, he was like, okay, all right, let's do that. That's pretty cool. I'm into that. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, again, Robert England Shrimp says like, I knew multiple other actors. I mean, the other guy. So in the film, Mark is the main guy. There's another male character with which there's a certain amount of sexual tension. The actor who is the other character was like, before I auditioned, I thought this was a gay movie. Like, I read the script and was like, oh, this is like a gay horror movie. Okay. Yeah. Like, that was like in his mind when he was auditioning for the part. Uh, but I, what I thought was funny is that you say the line, technically, Mark claims he didn't know fully until they did that scene that I was describing by the staircase. He's like, when we were doing that scene, I thought, oh, wait, this is not, is this movie, this is, a, this is, this, this is a homoerotic, this is a homoerotic movie. What? <sighs> I'm just saying, man. What did the gym teacher think they were doing <laughs> when he was dressed in leather at a fucking leather bar and then he was tied up and whipped by a younger I mean, man? One of the what guy- fucking, what other, what other premise could there be? To be fair, the bartender in that scene is the guy who runs he's the new producer. Line yeah, cinema. yeah. Or he's a, uh, what is this? Bob Bob Newline. And, yeah, whatever his actual fucking name is. Yeah, and Bob he, Shea. He also claims he had no idea. Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck him. He's a piece of shit. I feel like probably everybody knew. No, here's the thing about Bob Shea. He is the one. If you watch um, Never Sleep Again, right? He's the one who who sold Mark Patton up the river. I think that's true. He's yes. the one who was like, I don't know what you're talking gay. What is what is gay? I don't know what gay is. What is a right, homosexual? Right right, 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 right. So anyways, the point is I haven't actually finished it yet, so I can't give you guys a full review. Uh, but I'm about I'm I'm getting close to the end and I really, really like it. I already liked Mark. I saw him do a QA after a screening of uh of Night Run Up Street Two in the Poconos and it was great and uh, I'm glad this film exists, and I'm glad that there's an opportunity to have that conversation. I think this documentary probably led somewhat to Shudder doing, or Fangoria, or whoever's doing it, uh, this n- documentary about queer yeah. horror and whatever. So uh, I think that's great. I uh, like Mark Patton. He's a very nice I'm yeah. a, a friend of the podcast. Adriana and I were uh, we were lucky enough to meet him. Oh, yeah, a you told me about that. He's a yeah, yeah, very yeah. nice guy. Um, other than that, I haven't really watched... Any other horror than just for podcast stuff? Uh, I did watch, and it's not horror, but I want to recommend it to people. If you've never gotten to see the film, uh, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. I don't like that name. Well, it's very good. Okay. Well, because you're thinking of one definition, but the movie has two definitions. Because it's about a black man who joins the (laughs) CIA, (laughs) and he becomes a spook. I.e. a secret agent. You're making me nervous. <laughs> Only what's funny about it is he doesn't, right? Basically, the CIA, in the plot of the film, the CIA, basically, there's a guy running for president, I think president or Congress, something like that, and he needs to distract people from himself and the fact that like 
black people don't like him. So he's yeah. like, I need a cause. And one of his aides points out, well, you know, the CIA is very segregated. They don't have any black people in the CIA. And he's like, there it is. That's my thing. And so he rides that as a way to get elected. So the film is already starting in a you-can't-trust-whitey place. Gotcha. So then the CIA is like, well, we'll just let a bunch of black people in the program, then we'll fail them all, and then we won't have any black people, and it's fine. Uh, but one guy is really good. Hmm. And so finally they're like, this guy's so good. We got to just let him in. That's fine. So first they have him in the copy room. Okay. And then uh, he does a tour and they get all these compliments from the congressman he gives a tour for. We're to show that you're really integrated. And they're like, oh, this does make us look good. Let's put him on the welcome desk. So then they have him on the welcome desk. And then after five years, he's like, you know what, guys? I had an offer for this social work job in Chicago and it's more money because they're not paying him shit because he is just at the welcome desk. Uh, I'm going to go do that. And they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll keep an eye on him, but I'm sure it's fine. And then he gets to Chicago, and he's a social worker, and he goes to meet with the gangs, and you think it's so he can like get them to chill out. And instead he's like, I'm going to show you how to make a guerrilla army. And slowly, That's fucking dope. he uses all of his CIA training to make a guerrilla army that then spreads across the whole country. And that's what the movie's about. And no one ever suspects him, the thesis of the movie being, because no one takes black people seriously. So, you you know, the thesis is they don't respect us, so we could trick them into doing whatever we wanted if we did it, because we would just play off of their ignorance and fear, and they would never really know that we were totally organized. And it's very good. That's fucking dope. And so the, the title is referring to him being on the welcome desk. You know, who caused this thing? Well, was the, the one who sat by the door, you know? Hmm. The who who sat by the door? Which one? The name of the don't movie. Don't say it. The name don't of the say movie. It. Don't say it. Anyways, the man who sat by the door. <laughs> but he is, again, it, it, it's referring to one definition of the name more than the other. Here's definition. the thing. If it's not that bad, why aren't you saying it? Well, I was going to say it there because you go. I thought that was uh, not a big deal. But you keep cutting me off and trying to make me feel bad. <laughs> Look, it's not like I'm talking about that movie Boss. Hmm. Right. I know the movie Boss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh I recommend that film a lot. Uh, I, I don't know about y'all, but I just needed to watch something right now that was like black and angry, you know? I went to a protest where I saw a black gay man uh, tell the audience, I will look my enemy, enemy in the eye and say, it's me or you, motherfucker, and I'm going to choose me every time. And I was like, I'm going to burn down one, one Liberty Place because I am inspired right now. Oh, yeah, because you went to the that one in Philly. How yeah. was that? It's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, w- I was telling my, my parents about it, and like it was in Love Park, and it was like an LGBTQ-oriented fest, or fest, uh, march. Right. And right before we started marching, every cop in Philadelphia just suddenly rolled up and surrounded Love Park. Yeah, of course. And it was... It, it was a message. They they were very... Cl- and for those of you who don't know, police in Philadelphia have a um, checkered history oh, with people oh, of color. That's and pretty we'll good. Just, we'll that's, just leave that's, it at that's that. Mild. That's a mild. So, yeah, so... Um, and it's funny, when I was telling my parents about this, and I was like, yeah, and then like, all of a sudden these cops rolled up, my dad was like... And this was like... A, these were like black gay men? And I was like, yeah, my dad's like, typical. They probably thought they could pick on those gay guys and get away with it. And I was like, Dad, this, let me tell you what happened. None of that happened. Just stop. Yeah. Um, but no, it was fine. You know, we marched to the we marched to the um, art museum. Um, it was cool. I got a vegan Coke float later. That's good. Yeah. My friend, da- friend of the podcast, Davin, said that uh, yeah. Cowboys and Aliens was the scariest alien abduction movie she'd ever seen. Jesus I thought that Christ. was adorable. Stop. 
I can't. I mean, she doesn't watch horror movies, so. Yeah, that's fair. So. I just got a kick out of that. What have you done lately that's horror-related? I went to Becky's Drive and I took my niece to see Jaws. That's great. It was amazing. I love that movie. How did you feel about the Becky's vibe? They themselves were enforcing social distancing. No one else was. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Like, we parked way in the back away from other people. Yeah. But there was no, there was no enforcement of it. So, right. Whatever. I mean, I'm I'm wearing a mask for the rest of my life, and I've come to peace with that. It's I mean, fine. It, to be fair, the whole world is going green, and so I get it that like you know, all of the powers that be are starting to tell you like, it's fine. Just wear a mask inside. You'll be okay. But like, that's not real. You know, like don't get me wrong. Don't be racked with fear. I I've, I I keep trying to tell people like the options are not fuck it who cares and oh my god i'm gonna die yeah yeah there is actually space between these two extremes that i think you should live in and make rational decisions and try to be as safe as possible but you know as far as they can tell you if two people are wearing masks their risk goes down an incredible amount it's like three percent or something like that so just put a fucking ma- it the idea that wearing a mask is a massive inconvenience or disrespect to your personhood it is so goddamn disgusting. It's so every time I hear someone say it, I just think you're a fucking monster. Like there's just no world in which I'm like, sure, no, you're right. Here are some cool people who have worn masks. Spider Man. Right. The Phantom of the Opera. Right. The Gremlin from Gremlins Two who played the Phantom of the Opera. Yes. A bunch of other people. Yeah. So there. You're better than those people? Yeah. You fuck. <laughs> so yeah, Jaws was pretty good. You yeah. know, it was great. Uh, it was cool explaining to my niece being like did you know that Robert Shaw tried to kill Richard Dreyfus when they made this movie? And yeah. all you know, all the stories about how like he was drunk most of the time, and you know, we got to talk about like the USS Indianapolis and how two thousand men went in, yeah. two men came out. Yeah, just like you know, it's just it, it was very nice seeing a movie that I treasure as much as I treasure Jaws with my niece. But at the screen, at one screen over, they were showing some other stupid movie followed by E.T. So I could, I'm watching Jaws and I could see over there like E.T. comes up and it's like directed by Steven Spielberg and I wanted to be like, I know what you did. I know what you did. (laughs) He directed Poltergeist. Um, Stop it, you fuck. I also started watching, I actually, I finished watching one of them and I started watching the next one. On Netflix there are two, I believe they are American Indian productions, and I mean literally the country, the subcontinent of India. Right. The first is a film called uh, a four-part series called Batal. Oh yeah, I've heard that. That's good. It's good. Um, like I was telling you, I I don't know how I feel about a TV series where the premise is like a uh, rich Indian construction company breaks open a mountain and releases a army of cursed, yeah, zombified British soldiers. Yeah, who then proceed to like lay waste to the to the to to, to the countryside and yeah. Um, it's sort of like, I don't think the Indians have much guilt to really deal with. No. You know, it should be like the other way around, like, but, uh. Well, I don't think that zombies have to represent guilt, though. No, but it definitely had a thing of something that they would rather not think about. Something that's been covered up and buried. I, I, I'm not, I haven't watched it, so I don't no, but I would say that um, the idea of the sublimated British 
ethnicity-ness in India is something that I think the country is dealing with. I mean, it, it, just think about the movement there right now with this Hindu nationalism stuff. Yeah. It's basically historically inaccurate. I mean, no, no offense to any Indian listeners we have who are like super stoked on Modi and are really into Hindu pride and think they want to cast the Muslims out from their nation and the Christians too, for that matter. The idea that India existed as one grouping of people that's itself prior. A, that's a British invention. Yeah. The, that's a British invention. So like the idea that they there are ghosts, British ghosts in their past that they have not struggled with, I think that's a fair thought. I'm not saying the, that show slash movie, is it like a, I, that's what it can tell. It's, it's one of those weird, yeah, it's like a miniseries, yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying that that deals with it, but I'm, I'm willing to give it a chance because I do think there's certain things that's like, yeah, this is real Indian stuff that I'm. Well, like, it does. Uh. The thing is, it does have the main characters are members of the British military, and they are there under the pretense of dealing with a, I don't know, Nox, Nox, Noxial, Noxium. They're like a, they're like a left wing oh, socialist okay. party sure, within, sure, 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 sure. like radical socialists in India. So I think there might be something there, but um, it's, it's got a few moments that are like a little too cheesy action movie for me. Um, but it has a lot of really, really interesting uh, visual choices. Mm. Um, it kind of delves into like Hindu, uh, like sort of Hindu folklore, which I really liked. Um, and it was just, it was just a, a neat movie in that it, it kind of, did you ever read Crossed by Garth Ennis? No. Okay. So the thing about these zombies is like they're they're zombies, but they're operating. They're kind of like a hive mind, so they're all under control of one central intelligence. So an individual zombie might not have any sort of like capability, sure. But as a whole, they all have this, and this entity kind of like fucks with the. It's like a castle siege movie. The this entity is kind of like fucking with the people inside, and I thought that was like kind of interesting because it reminded me of uh, you know the comic book Crossed where. It's basically like twenty eight days later, but like they they maintain like rational, yeah, 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 you know, and they just like fuck with people. I thought that was I I think that kind of like almost set it apart from like your typical like you know us versus them that used to be us Castle Siege movie. Yeah, I feel that. Um, and then I watched another Indian production on Netflix. Uh, I am th- into three out of four episodes. It's called Ghoul. Oh yes, yeah. I saw you post about this. That movie is fucking neat, or that series is neat. Yeah. Um. It it it, it kind of it it deals again with like Indian nationalism, and it takes place like slightly in the future, not like Blade Runner style, but maybe like five years from now, after like a violent ultranationalist takeover of India, where everyone is like, I th- I think they're either Christian nationalists or Hindu nationalists. I know those two get mixed up a lot, and they they're very very similar, but they're not. Muslim nationalists. Um, well, yeah, in India, this is hard for people to comprehend who don't know the politics over there, but in India, Muslims are like the most uh, sort of oppressed group, really. You know, sort yeah. of like a minority group. Exacerbated, I think, because of their relationship with, with Pakistan. Pakistan. Yeah. yeah, there's like a feeling of like, go to Pakistan. And that's like, why... Pakistan exists. Yeah, exactly. But there are still Muslim people in India. Not yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. went to Pakistan. Uh, and I think the Christians in India then um, catch a little bit of that 
their way because it's like you guys suck too but it's not the same it's not the same it's not as uh intense towards christians in india as it is towards muslims in india there is very real animosity in right. india yeah right. um but no this one is it's just interesting because it has to do with the concept of um collective guilt sure um and how the idea is that this thing this ghoul that uh infiltrates this military unit it's there to it's there to reveal the guilt of everyone involved there and everyone has this you know it, it, the, the it quickly becomes apparent that like there are no innocent people in this like this this is this is when you exist in this like ultra nationalist violently militaristic lifestyle you are inherently guilty of what yeah. is objectively wrong right um and plus there's a scene that was like very reminiscent of like the of carpenters of the thing where the, you know they find like macready's like clothes Oh sure, yeah. There's yeah, like yeah. a scene in that because the thing can like copy people. Yeah. Um, but no, it's it's very very tense, very claustrophobic. Um, it's just you know it's just uh, uh, you know it's they're four four forty five minute episodes just like Batal was. Um, I'm probably gonna finish it tonight. Um, so yeah, and they're both on Netflix. Very easy to 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 bang out. Um, so just yeah, Ghoul and Batal on Netflix. Okay. And that's all I've done in Robin Hall recently. <laughs> that's still pretty. It's better yeah. than me. I, I have a, a movie I haven't even finished yet. Yes. All right. So I guess we'll take a break. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about 1981's American slasher film directed by Wes Craven, A Deadly Blessing. In the rolling hills of eastern Pennsylvania, in this quiet community of simple farmers untouched by time, a gruesome secret has been protected for generations. Into this world come three young women, drawn by the beauty of the land, unaware of the mystery it holds. How could they have known that what they would discover would call forth a deadly blessing? Laws cannot crush the incubus. Ours can. There are three of us. We'll manage. We shall make it impossible for the incubus to rest comfortably in your soul. Ah! If thine hand offends thee, then in God's name, cut it off! has arrived. Those who will not believe. Those who will not be warned. May you be damned in hell. Those who will defy its power. Become its prey. It's him. The chilling story of terror and suspense. Deadly blessing. 
And we are back <laughs> to talk about Deadly Blessing, a 1981 American slasher film directed by Wes Craven. Summary, according to Wikipedia, is is a strange figure committing murder in a contemporary community that is not far from another community that believes in ancient evil and curses. That is a very fucking bland description of this movie. Um, maybe it's just because I went to school <laughs> in an area that was like had a had a very there's a lot of Mennonites, right? Which is what this movie is basically about, kind of H- Hittites, Mennonites, right? Jacobites, the Amish. Um, but there were so many scenes in this movie where like they would show these like earnest young children and these earnest men with their and literally earnest men because Ernest Borgnine's in this movie with their strange facial hair and I was just like oh this is like when we used to go to like the the the, the farmer's market in in, in Kutztown and Topped and all that when I was in college I don't know how I felt about this movie well it's it's weird for a movie that feels on one hand it doesn't have a lot of craven stuff in it in no. a way on the other hand it has a lot of craven stuff in it because Wes Craven was brought up in a strict fundamentalist Baptist uh, community he was a preacher at one moment, at one time wasn't he yeah and I mean you could argue that that religious stuff that he's still struggling with is like or I said still uh, but he's not with us anymore but he was struggling with it's kind of present in a lot of his movies in fact friend of the show Jacob Knight uh, claimed to have watched uh, a bunch of Wes Craven's um, uh, porno stuff. He did a bunch of porno. Mm. Well, before he did horror, and then after, when when he didn't quite break, he still did some porn stuff. And he said there was religious themes in the porn too. So this is like something that matters to him to various degrees throughout his career. Um, and in this movie, I think there is a bit of that going on, uh, not just in the community itself, but I think in the way the film kind of works its way out. Um, so the movie opens with uh, basically a story of a, a man who has left this community. Yes. He still lives nearby, which is how people do, you know, they stick with what's familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, but he, he's fallen in love and he's brought a woman into this community. And then, uh, he, uh, dies. How does he die, Liam? Uh, how does he die? It's run over by a tractor. It fucking sucks. Yeah. Uh, and this community is very small. I mean, okay, there's a part of me that immediately is like, this community is too small because, you know, if this was a, was a giallo, right, which it's not, but if it were, you would immediately know who did it. Yes. Because you're like, well, obviously it's the Hittites, which means it can't possibly be the Hittites, which means there's only these other two people in the whole Michael community. Berryman would have been a red herring. Right, exactly. So uh, in this community, everyone is either Hittites or this one dude and his wife or this other, uh, uh, these other people who is it's like a woman and, well, what we are presented to at first as her daughter, which is not the case. Um and they immediately seem creepy. So the fact that they immediately seem creepy and are in fact the exactly the kind of weird that the Hittites are worried about in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, the movie progresses. There's not really a suggestion of anything too supernatural. I, I guess there's a few moments where it's like, 
maybe there's something more here. But for the most part, the film is pretty much like, this is a slasher movie. Someone's getting slashed. That's there's slashing going on. One of the problems I had with this movie is that there's really no suggestion of any, no avert supernatural, super superb naturality going on. And at the very end, I was like, what? What? No. No. Yeah. No. So okay. So let's talk about the movie itself first off, which is. A, let's point out, Ernest Borgnine got a Razzie for his performance Good. in this film. I don't agree. I think he's fine. Which Now, what, what was your favorite scene? Was it when he was um, beating children with a stick? That's pretty good. Or was it the scene where he was beating a child with a stick? A fat that was child. Also, that was also pretty yeah, good. I really liked when he beat that fat child with a stick in front of his yeah, friends. Yeah, it was a good performance. Fucking rap bastards. It's called acting, man. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't care what he was doing. He was acting. And I don't think his performance was that bad. He's a little flat, but he's not... Terrible, terrible. Um, when her friends come, including uh, one Miss Sharon Stone. Amazing in this movie. I just can't believe Sharon Stone oh, is in this God, movie. She's so fucking gorgeous in this movie. <laughs> um, you know, it, there's a sense in which I, I do think the movie does a good job in that you're never quite settled with any of these characters. No. And the movie kind of assumes that you're going to identify with the non-Hittite characters because the Hittites are crazy people. And so you're just going, well, I'm not going to sympathize with Hittites, so I sympathize with these nice young ladies and their neighbor. Only the neighbor turns out to be a psychopath. And these nice young ladies are like, nice enough, I guess. But they kind of... The things that the Hittites are worried about them being, they kind of are those things. Yes, and what's strange is that Despite the fact that the Hittites are obviously outsiders, right? The way they're cast in the film is that the "quote unquote" normal people are the ones who are the outsiders. Yeah, they don't belong here. They're invade. They have invaded. This yeah, space. which is like a, a too smart for this movie. No, it's a Wes Craven movie. It's not too smart. It's uh, exactly what Wes Craven... Again, there's not a lot of other. You know, Wes Craven has certain shots he does. He has certain like imagery. There's not a ton of that in this movie, but what is very worth craving is how smart it is. Okay. In that, in that, at least that one aspect. There's other parts that might be stupid in the film. I will give this movie credit, like legitimate credit, because I wasn't nuts about this movie. I do appreciate the fact that this is the only film I have seen where Michael Berryman just plays a guy. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Michael Berryman. Is he supposed to be... Uh, mentally handicapped in this film or is he just an old man who hangs out with children i think he's supposed to be like oh that's william he's uh simple yes okay you know he's he's treated like one of the kids he's, he's one child-like. of the kids he's innocent they refer to him as a kid yeah but what? he's a giant man though yeah he's michael berryman you know michael berryman but what i like about this is like uh, what i like about this movie is like this is the only movie i've ever seen with michael berryman where He's just—he's a fucking guy. He's not an angel who come who came, you know. And he's here to I think there are other. Mo- I think I've seen a couple movies where he's a, a guy. I think I saw a movie where he was a security guard. The Giver doesn't count because he's actually a Zoe Lord. No, I think I saw. I think he's a security. You're thinking guard of the Giver. I'm not thinking of the Giver. He's a security guard in a movie. Yeah, he, in the Giver, he's like a security guard, and he turns into a thing to kill no, the Giver. No, he's a leader of the Zoe. No, because Zo- it's a movie he's in with Dick Miller. Dick Miller is another zoonoid. He plays. Stop! <laughs> oh, you're such a monster right now. Um, okay, so uh, most of the film presents as a uh, slasher film plus a fish out of. So the these women are like fish out of water. They're in a new environment. Yes. 
Um, it also has like a, a vague love story in it, which you know is not going to work out because uh, it's it's not clear that these two people actually love each other, like or, or even have that much affection. It's literally a man who is horny, who and a woman has, who is nearby, who has a woman who's more than willing to spend her life with him, but is not willing to go against. Uh, and again. <sighs> I think Craven is playing with the expectations of his audience because most people are watching this going, look at this frigid girl, won't fuck him out in the field or whatever. And it's like, no, she's good, actually. She turns out to be very important in the movie. Yeah. He's an asshole just trying to get his rocks off with random blonde lady. Yeah, yeah. Not even the most attractive of the random uh, ladies, nope. or as they're calling them, the messengers of the incubus or whatever. Oh, the fuck. No, just straight up incubus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Incubi. Incubus. Yeah. Um. And so I think the smart thing that Craven is doing, and again, this is a meta smart. This is uh, I'll get to what I think about the movie in a second. The smart thing that he's doing in the structure of the film is that he's setting you up that you're identifying with these people, but on the other hand, it's not clear that they aren't what they're being accused of to a certain yes, extent. Yes, yes. Um, and that's why I like the ending, and we'll get to that in a second. However, most of the film, regardless of what you think about the ending, most of the film functions as a slasher movie. And I got to tell you guys, even though I like this movie and I like talking about this movie, and I think I've talked about it before actually on this podcast, but we'll get into that in a sec. The movie, it's not great. It's not a great slasher movie. Mm-mm. And this is, I mean, not that Wes Craven is known for slasher movies, because unless you count Nightmare on Elm Street, which I, I kind of don't, because Freddy's supernatural. It's like not yeah. the same thing. But because of the work he does in Freddy, I know he can do uh, in Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street. I know he can do that level of tension, that level of uh, of fear of stalking. Yeah, I don't think that's as present in The Hills Have Eyes as people think it is. I think that movie is not as great as it is vaunted as. But I still think it is in that movie more than it is in this movie. This movie manages to really create an environment where in theory all of our characters are in danger and yet i feel so little in the way of tension yeah there's no there's no real there's no real like um we only feel unsafe because we know we're supposed to mm-hmm. the the filmmakers don't really do the work or go the distance to make it to create an atmosphere of which like oh this character is being watched and stalked by like the killer and if they do, it just doesn't, it doesn't, like, there's a scene with Sharon Stone in the basement that was just so. Was that the basement or the barn? The barn, I'm sorry, the barn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that just felt so fucking lackluster and, like, I just mean, dull. I, I would say, like, the movie actually plays more like a thriller or, like, a drama that happens to have a couple murders in it. For most of the movie, until you get to the, to the, uh, let's say the climax as opposed to the very end. The climax suddenly becomes, again, a Craven style, like all out battle with like sh- shotguns and yeah. craziness and like a uh, 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 Hittite woman in a nightgown doing some murdering. <laughs> and like the, it, 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 it feels like the climax, Wes Craven suddenly shows up. Yeah. Again, I, I you know I wouldn't argue that Deadly Friend is a very good movie, but Deadly Friend is a movie in which a woman's head gets smushed by a basketball. That's at least exciting. Yeah. Most of what happens in this movie before the climax is not at all exciting unless you just think seeing Sharon Stone is exciting. No, but no. most of the rest, I mean, 
uh, I will say he rips himself off in that run up street. Like he likes the image of the woman in the bathtub. Yes. Only yes. in this movie, it's a snake, and it's like not really as scary <laughs> as Freddy's supernatural claw coming yeah. up out of the bath. But you know, whatever. It, it's the same shot basically. He does the same thing. Yeah. The point is, um, most of the movie is kind of a bummer. And the first time I saw it, I was very like, oh, I don't know if I like this. Then we get to the climax, and I think the climax is kind of exciting. It's not great; it doesn't redeem the whole movie, but it's kind of like, all right, we're really you know picking up. Yeah, and it's such a weird ending. Why does this woman have her man friend pretending to be her daughter? Why that is a theme? It really seems to add a question of there's a question there of deviance in a very traditional sense, especially because. It's never made clear why this is happening. This person is not. Uh, it doesn't seem like this person is trying to live as a woman. It's not no. an identity thing. It's not like sleepaway camp where someone is forced to live this way. It's literally like she just doesn't want anyone to know she has a boyfriend, so the boyfriend lives as her daughter. You know what I mean? Like uh, that part. Just, it just was it her boy? I don't even know if it. If I was it. It was her boy. Would you even say it was her boyfriend? I just thought it was like. Like her, like a guy who was like obsessed with her. Well, so this is the thing. I I think it was the woman who lives with her yeah. lover, and then he is actually into our main character. Gotcha. Okay. And that's what sort of the whole thing develops is that he's obsessed with her, and then she's trying to get revenge too, and it's all this sh- shooting each other at the end. It's just unnecessary bullshit. No, I like it. I think ah. that part is we're finally getting interesting, but. That adds a layer to what I think Craven is kind of doing here, which is like, you know what? The Hittites didn't trust those people, and they were fucking right. They're actually fucked up. They're actually, I mean, she's been murdering, he, pretending to be a she, has been murdering all these people, and it's not, again, it's not like an identity, it's not like a, it's not a movie that's anti-trans. It's a movie that is like weird mystery. Like, why are they doing this, you know? And then- so basically, it all culminates with our lead character surviving, whatever. Sharon Stone leaves. She's there. She's visited by the ghost of her dead husband. And then the incubus shows up. The right? actual incubus explodes through the floor. Right. And grabs her. So here's my feeling. This is where I will say why I'm justifying the fact that we watch this movie. Okay. I think, I think we can both say that for the most part, this movie is not great. It's not terrible. I've watched worse movies, this, but this movie was spectacularly unremarkable. It's mostly boring. Yeah. With a few highlights here and there. Sharon Stone's cool. I like Ernest Borgnine, Borgnine even though I know people think his performance is bad. I, I found it fun. I, I like it. Yeah. But it doesn't work. The Incubus showing up at the end, for me, is something that we've talked about this before, which is I think a lot of religious horror, right? Mm-hmm. So, because we've talked about this, where you're like, religious heart doesn't work because if you believe in it, right, mm-hmm. then you know God's going to win. Yes. So even if the Satan is spooky for you on a personal level, yeah. you don't want him to show up. I'd be bummed if he walked in right now. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if you're religious, you don't want him to show up. But you can't. The idea that the point of the film is maybe God's going to lose, that just shows that you're not really faithful. That you don't really believe in it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I gave you my theory which is like well that's not what religious horror is about what religious horror is about is that we're all rational humans right and we've all decided this is crazy talk and we might be wrong 
And religious horror represents our fear that we are not right. Yes. To me, this is the er text of that. This is the fucking pinnacle of that. This is literally Wes Craven going, actually, guys, the crazy religious community that I fled and I made porno in order to separate myself from, sometimes I'm afraid they're right about everything. <laughs> that all these people they told me to avoid are corrupter evil forces in my life. That they actually did make me bad. That I am actually the monster they were told me I would be. You if really I ever think left. that's the subtext of this movie? That's what the whole fucking movie is. Because the movie ends. They've already, if you're paying attention, they've already shown that everyone the Hittites said is not trustworthy is not trustworthy. Yes. And then the whole time the Hittites go, if you let evil in, the incubus will get you. And at the end, the ghost shows up and goes, the incubus is going to get you, and the incubus gets her. (laughs) There is nothing Ernest Borgnine has said that isn't wrong the whole movie. (laughs) True. So if Wes Craven, uh, honestly, in a sense, a survivor of a restrictive possibly terrible i mean the way he describes it is not positive which did, did he belong to a it was a baptist community. i was gonna say yeah i thought it was just like a, I, I, I didn't but it was like super fundamental i mean he, the way he describes it is like granted not like the hittites this is an exaggeration of his experience. it's not like an isolated uh, sect his feeling is that at least from what i read that it's almost like that. That it was so restrictive and so conservative hmm. that it felt like being a part of a community like that, even if you didn't dress funny and you didn't use funny language. It was still that kind of experience. Gotcha. And that a lot of his filmmaking was so extreme because he was separating himself from that. So to me, watching this movie is like... And in the end, the reason that matters to me is, one, I think it's really interesting uh, it's an interesting movie from Wes Craven to make. I think that there's interesting themes going on there. Even if the movie doesn't work, it still is instructive in some way. But I, then I even take it out at a heavier level. So my theory about, like I said, all religious horror is that I think all of Western, scientific, white world is like... I mean, except for those who are steeped in, well, I'll get to them in a second, but let's say the, you know, the, the secular white world yeah. has this underlying fear that maybe they're wrong. And maybe that's in a literal sense, like, oh, I'm going to die. And it turns out, you know, Jesus or Muhammad or whoever was right, and I'm going to end up in hell. Uh, that's the most base level, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it's not just a literal fear that maybe we're wrong and religion is right, though I think that can be an expression of it. It's a fear that the whole thing is wrong, that like the whole veneer of civilization and modernity and logic is just, it's all not real, that we're putting our faith, we've got these wings on, and if we jump off the cliff, we're pretty sure we're going to fly, but underneath there's some voice going, no, man, you are fucked. There is no fucking way. That there's some part of us that, if we really listen to it, would go, this plane should not fucking be flying right now, and it's not okay that it is. I mean, that's a silly example, but you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. There's this, uh, that, that the underbelly of all secular intellectualism is this fear of maybe we're wrong. And then I would say the manifestation of that is that the sorts of insane evangelical fervor that we see I think is uniquely a reaction to modernism now I think all of time there's been certain kinds of zealots but oftentimes those zealots are simply a 
feeling of we've lost our way and we yeah, need yeah, to yeah. get back to the to the thing. Evangelicalism, uh, and let's just say fundamentalism in general, is the most extreme version of that because it goes beyond. It's not back to the core. It, it it goes to new territory in its extremity, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so um, I think... <sighs> I think as much as it is a rejection of modernity, fundamentalism is fundamentally modern because it is the shadow side of this other thing. And the fact that it exists makes modernity go, fuck, what if we're just that? What if we're like, what if they're not as crazy as we think they are, even though they are definitely crazy? I don't think this movie is saying Ernest Borgnine is not a monster. I think the movie is very much like, this dude sucks and this whole thing sucks. But my fear, what makes this a scary movie, is not just that someone's getting killed, it's that what if they're right? Yes. That's the fear underneath, and that's why the fucking... I mean, it's also a silly stinger that I'm sure Wes Craven was just like, ha there's a monster at the end. I think that's <laughs> part of it, but I think it also gets at something where it's like, yeah, wouldn't it suck if they were right, though? Wouldn't that suck? Wouldn't that be horrifying? I think that's a little bit what's going on in this movie. And every analysis I've brought to any religious horror... Of the since in the last like six years has been influenced by this movie. I watched this movie when I first moved to Easton, and I thought, "Holy shit, this is fucked!" Holy shit! And then I have now watched every religious movie since then, religious horror movie, with the idea of, "Okay, I don't think the person who made this movie is actually interested in religion," with the only exception of William Peter Blatty. Outside of him. Every other person who makes religious horror that I can tell is not secretly a Jesus person who's like, I'm going to win people to Jesus by having this. <laughs> That's not really it. I, uh, so I'm like, why, did this, why is this scary then? And I think it's this feeling of like, what if we're not as rational as we think we are? What if, you know? So, and we talked a little bit of this with, with uh, oh, Folkar. That Folkar yeah, yeah, yeah. comes a little bit from that British feeling of like, you know. What if, what if this is just a thin veneer of... Yeah, what if we're not the Royals? What if we're the soccer hooligans? <laughs> or worse, you know? Yeah. So, uh, anyway, sorry. Sorry to go on a rant about Deadly Blessing, but the thing is, without the theory, there's not much else to say about the movie other than, like, eh, Ernest Borgnine, I guess. Yeah. Sharon Stone's attractive. All right, that's the, that's the whole movie. The kills are, like, not fun at all. No, there was, like, the, the, the shit with the spider, I thought, was very um, cheap. Yeah. Like cheap as in like you don't want to get creeped out. Oh, it's a spider! Like, oh, even big the sna- fucking deal. even the snake part. It's just like oh, okay. oh, a snake. No, it's literally the most interesting kills is when it stops being a horror movie and, and briefly becomes an exploitation shootout at the end. But yeah, kind of like the hills have eyes. Honestly, I I did think the way that Michael Berryman dies in the beginning was kind of like painful, just because the thought of getting stabbed in the liver. Right makes my fucking skin want to leap off my body and right. just. I, also, he was seeing. Also, also, he was seeing our main character uh, get dressed in that scene. Yes. So you know he died with a boner. He and did die with a boner. Upsetting. So yes, there's nothing upsetting about that. I would not want to die with a boner. We're all gonna die. <laughs> so that's deadly blessing. Yeah, deadly blessing. It was fine. I, I don't think we can recommend it to you per se. No, but I do think there's interesting themes in it, and I think if you're a Wes Craven fan you probably still haven't seen it. it's just one of those movies people haven't watched i literally had no idea it existed until you brought it up oh man i i literally was like 
I, we said literally too much. I was when I was doing. Remember, I was doing that horror column on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I need some things I haven't seen before. And I was like, you know, there's a bunch of Wes Craven I haven't watched, and I just it just happened to be available. I think it was like streaming on Netflix, and I was like, all right, let's check it out. Hmm. And I was like, wow, that was terrible. And yet I'm thinking about it for days. I kept I kept punishing people with my rant about modernity and religious horror for like months afterwards. Interesting. So sorry about that, guys. If it was a bummer. All right, I guess we're gonna go to this other movie. Yeah, we're doing another movie. We're gonna we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna talk about 1982's The Slayer, in which nobody faces the Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. What you're about to see may shock you. It may frighten you more than you've ever been frightened before. Don't worry. It's only a maddening, horrifying nightmare. Or is it? What are you going to do? Fire some flares. Did you give her the pills like I told you? No. Maybe it's not a nightmare after all. There's nothing up here. Are they really alone? Or is there an unwelcome guest? Is this a nightmare? Or is it the fear we all have when we're alone in the dark? And if it's only a nightmare, why is everybody dead? Prepare yourself. Because you will never want to be alone again. Prepare yourself for... And we are... We're back! We've returned. We've returned. I was going to do it because, you know, like how the first Refuse LP starts out with, we're back, and they do Pump the Brakes. Pump the Brakes by Refuse. Pump the Brakes. Yeah, time to pump the brakes. I really only like that song because i love the video and the fact that they are wearing so many layers in those oh my god and every layer is either revelation or victory records the best part about new age when i when i've heard that song for the first time and they open up with we're back which is an obvious nod to you know youth of today i remember being like turning to my friend and being like from the demo like what what what, where are they back from where'd they go anyway that's your lesson in 90s hardcore 90s european hardcore Dennis Lixon is an edge breaker, so I cannot. But that new band he's in with Brian Baker is really fucking good. What's the new band? I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, it's it's not. It's really good though. Huh. It, we listen to all the time down at work. I think. Um. I think the Refuse material is pretty great, up to uh, the Shape of Punk to come, and then I. What have, is there? What's? What do you mean up? That's. That's what I'm saying. I'm I have mixed feelings about the shape of punk to come. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, when it came out, I was convinced it was the best thing ever. Okay. And then over time, it's become less interesting to me, and I don't think I like it as much as I used to. I still dig it. Hey, thanks, baby. All right. So the Slayer, also known as I don't know, I don't know why they didn't go with this title, Nightmare Island. <sighs> so this movie. Um. I so. Guys, I picked this. This was actually the first movie I picked. And I picked it because it's an error release that mm. I saw people giving positive reviews to. And I had never watched it. And I saw it was available on Tubi 
and I just thought like, oh, this is cool, Slayer thing, you know, movie. It's on Arrow. I hear Ooh, it's kind wow. of fun. Whatever. Let's just do it. It's good to do it. This least movie one. was classified as a video nasty, and I don't know why because this is such a <laughs> fucking team movie. This is such a. I like how you looked around like you were going to fed someone. Oh, I didn't. I didn't want to swear in front of Susan. Stop. Fuck I don't. You. Know. She's. Like, Fuck you. Uh, this is like a. This is such a toothless like. Okay, so, um, how to describe this movie for y'all? I I think what the movie is trying to be is emotional and atmospheric, and it succeeds. I do think there is a level of there is a sparseness to this film that I think they accomplished, but I don't think they go, they could have done a lot more with it because it takes place in this right. island that was clearly once inhabited. Right. Uh, apparently it's an island off the coast of Georgia. Um, the island was once, was once inhabited. They find like a school there and like a few other buildings and then they just don't do anything with it. Well, I think um, they have all this set up. Here's what I think is going on. I think the movie is much like uh, the movie we just discussed, which is why I put them together. It's a bait and switch slasher. It has all the accoutrement of a slasher, mm-hmm. and then it's like, ha ha, not a slasher, tricked you. Yeah, and uh, that's that doesn't work. Um, it, it might work for other movies, but for this movie, you've set up such a weird sort of grouping of people mm-hmm. with all this haunting ambiance. And then you waste it on really cheap setups to really not interesting kills. Yeah. It. If if the whole movie had just been her losing her shit, that'd have been great. And then it just culminates in all three of them sort of like going into a shitty. So so just so you guys know, uh, you know, it's a slasher. People slowly die, uh, and then it, she finally locks herself in this house. And then there's a fire in which she uh, kills basically her ride up mistake you know shoots her ride off the island with a flare and then at the last second this scary the demon thing shows up Let, let's be clear the scary demon thing is clearly her it has her bone structure and her hair color it's her dead her her own corpse comes out of the attic to harass her and then she wakes up so okay i we, well, we went I, a little ahead there's a question about her mental health because since she was a kid she had this scary dream and then her cat died mm-hmm. and her family was like you killed that fucking cat and she's always like no this other scary thing killed the cat and because of that her brother is like she's a fucking nut job the whole movie like he doesn't come out and say it but the whole tone of the film is you know her she's a nut job and his brother's wife is just like is equally which is kind of because in the beginning when she he's like what you don't want to spend two weeks with my sister and she's like you know, no, not really. And it's it's like both these people fucking hate her. There's a sense. So she's an artist. And I think the movie is meant to be a bit of a meditation on suffering and art and mental health and art. Uh, and they never fucking explore. They, it, no. It's literally a small like plot point. And uh, there's all this work done to make this a film about her mental health and about maybe she's losing it, and about maybe she's manifesting something. I mean, this could have been like a Tulpa movie, in mm-hmm. a sense, uh, or or all kinds of other shit. But then it just becomes a cheap slasher, which, again, why go with the slasher motif if it's a possible, like, supernatural whatever? And it becomes a meditation on fate with the ending, but the stuff in the middle 
it, it, so the reason I thought of deadly of pairing it with deadly blessings because I knew they were both tricky slashers, like slashers, but not really. Yeah. But what I didn't expect them both to be was boring, <laughs> and um, this movie is to me far more offensive than Deadly Blessing because Deadly Blessing is more of a trick. It is more messing with you, and it's messing with your expectations and messing with your sense of reality. This movie. I think just doesn't know what to do. It, it sets up all this atmosphere and then it just wants to be a slasher. I suspect because that's what's popular, mm-hmm. but these people could have died anyway because there's no killer. There's no definite killer. So why even have a slasher scenario? Just have them get pushed off of shit or get like, literally you could have had them die where it was just a camera zooming in and them screaming, and then there's just a bloody corpse and no one knows what the fuck happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been more effective than a fucking fishing pole or whatever, you know what I mean? Or like the dude's head getting uh, fucked up with the oar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that guy. I like he's talking to himself like, I need to get me a good woman or dog. But you you know what I mean? Like, there's no need for that slasher vibe. What this movie is hugely guilty of is it, it tries to take... Um, it tries to take like an easy way out by taking the, the, the trademark of a giallo, which is like the weird psychic, uh, touches that giallo films have. And then it tries to inject this, like these slasher tropes into it. And it just, it doesn't really do the legwork to make those things work. If that makes any sense, because, uh, what it does is they keep talking about how she's had these dreams or she sees these things and there's just like, oh, she used to paint real things, but now she just, she paints these things that she, like these surreal art things that she, that she sees in her dreams. And they, they keep setting it up to be that somehow this is like tied in with some psychic ability that she has, except the only time we ever talk about the psychic ability or the only time it ever, the psychic ability is really mentioned yeah is when it's fucking mentioned. There's not like, no, aside from when her when her husband dies and she has the dream, right? But it's like it, it, it it's like there's no other there's the movie has nothing to do with like any sort of strange uh, clairvoyance except when they have to bring up. And at the end, where it just is like, actually, she's going back to being a child. It's so that was so it's stupid. A, well, I think it's supposed to represent on paper. It's supposed, I think, to be like a, a an idea around. Not being able to escape your fate. Cool. It's a very shitty representation of that. uh, Yeah. To me, this is one of the unfortunate similarities between these movies is that I think they both work better as ideas as opposed to as actual films. That they are, that there, I think there's stuff, actual thought going into them. And in the case of The Slayer, a little bit of craft too, that some of what works in The Slayer is that. Um, intangible whatever that makes a movie different than a book. You know, this is why I get very mad when people are like, well, what I don't like about that movie is there wasn't a clear narrative. I'm like, yeah, it's because a movie isn't just the script. It's yeah. also the images and sound and editing yeah. and lighting and a million other fucking things. And I, 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 what works about The Slayer is that some of the imagery is haunting and yes. some of the atmosphere is haunting. All these shots of this like desolate beach. Right. Right. You know, and it's weird because like, we're going on vacation. Yeah, we're going to have a good time. And then they get there. As soon and as it's they like, get there. 
It's like it's like the beach in winter. If you've right. ever been to the Jersey Shore, like in January, yeah. it's like desolate and gray and washed out. And they're just like completely oblivious to that. And there's something that's like weird. And again, I, I keep I, I mentioned it before, but it's the fact that like this island was once was once clearly inhabited. And like the only person who seems to notice that it's kind of weird that it's not anymore is her. Right. Everyone else is just like she's like, there's a abandoned school, and they're like who, who fucking cares? Come on, let's get, let's like. Well, and I think that adds to the nightmare quality. Like, she seems to be the only character with character, and everyone else could literally be like a, uh, like a shittily written side character in a video game. Like, they don't have yeah. anything to them. Or an actual scarecrow. Right. <laughs> like, just, uh, that, uh, just, yeah. The point being is that I think a lot of the atmosphere and those things could work. But again, and this is where maybe I, I actually find myself agreeing with the people who are obsessed with plot. Uh, the script is bad. Yeah. And it's not just the dialogue, which is bad but not terrible. It's that they couldn't figure out, once they had the cool setup, and I bet they had the ending right away too. Of course they did. Everything in the middle is just so boring. I would actually say that, you know, as much as I think Deadly. Uh, blessing is also kind of boring it's so much more interesting than this film i'm so glad i watched this movie first because it made deadly blessing a bit more engaging yeah well there's some stuff happening see the problem i have with this movie is like it it, pick a fucking thing pick a thing that you want it to be and the fact that the fact that they kind of because like you said they obviously had the ending in mind of how it was gonna right they either they didn't or the or they're the shittiest filmmakers of all time if you have the ending of where it's all a dream you could do whatever you want. You could do so much. Just cool, fucking tie it all together. Psychotic nightmare shit. Just tie. Make it makes like just instead. It is the most cheap, uh, boring kind of. Sl- and, and, and you know, Justin doesn't love slashers, but I think we would both agree there is like a way to do a slasher well. There are good slashers, yes. And this movie has not spent. The people who made this movie did not spend any time actually figuring out how to set up a slasher well. No. So there's all this weird atmosphere stuff that could work, but it's never heightened. It's always a, a, a low level. It's never brought up to the level where you're like, okay, now I'm fucking freaking out because this is some nightmare shit. And they do it, like, it's so fucking, like, they they have, like, the shittiest, I mean, granted, this movie was made in 82, so I can't really come down in it too hard for this, but the airline pilot who's like, this island's been uninhabited for 50 years. Yeah. Beware! Like, okay, dude. I I just felt that that was like the peep, like the filmmakers, were like, you know, how do we make it ominous? How do we make it scary? Can we just? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The beach is haunting and desolate and it looks abandoned, but like, how do we have this weird old guy wearing like a Canadian Canadian tuxedo who flies him in and he just he's just ominous the whole time? How about that? And then he shows up at the end for no reason. How about we do that? Let's just do that. It's just fucking lazy. Yeah, I think that's what it boils down to. Is that? I mean, look. The the positive I will say is I bet a lot of the sparseness of this film was because of a lack of budget. Yes. And yet it plays at times as intentional. They use it to their advantage. However, part of the sparseness is also the cast. It's not a big cast. There's five people in the entire movie. You can't do a slow kill off with those few people. Yeah. It's just not interesting. And then if you are going to do that, at least make the kills exciting and engaging. 
and at least do some tense like buildups where it's like oh it's not it's not that you the know? most interesting kill um is when she shoots a guy with a with a that's pretty cool flare well i was gonna say i th- i think i i think the fisherman getting beat to death with an oar was interesting that's all right the most confusing one was when the guy gets i think dragged out to sea by a fishing pole What's what I'm saying? Yeah, I mentioned that one earlier. He gets the one of the guys gets killed with, with a fishing pole. That and by just, killed, we mean hooked a little bit and dragged, and then dragged. Was fucking Robert Shaw on the other end, like yanking that thing and dragging? Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. BT Dubs, who is dragging? <laughs> what are we meant to believe is on the other? Is it? It's certainly not the skeleton in the attic. It's not that comes the, sli- at the yeah. end. Yeah. <sighs> I don't even want to spend too much longer on this movie. Even I think I, I want us to have a full episode. I do think that, but this, I'm tired of this movie. I, I did say that I think this movie was worth it alone for the scene with the skeleton at the end. Because I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna fucking sit here and be Joe Cool. That skeleton scared the fuck out of me. <laughs> When again, that thing jumped out, I was again, like, "Whoa!" The skeleton jumping out of the attic—it's not quite a skeleton. It's like a—it's like a spooky creature, creature corpse. It's thing. a slayer. When that jumps out of the attic, I thought, well, that's what they spent the money on. That's like, they, they knew that was going to happen. Yes. That was her fucking sealing herself into a house with fire and then being attacked by her dead self only to wake up as a kid. That is so, uh, I mean, okay, I get that it's corny, but I would also argue it's kind of the best part of the movie in a sense. It's, like It's that ab- combo of things. It absolutely is the only coherent, line of thought in this entire film but it feels like everything that gets you to that point i mean i think the intro is pretty good like when the movie first started i'm like okay i get the dynamics this is all good once they get to the island there's a whole bunch of walking and being creeped out okay that's fine but then once we get the first kill everything between the first kill and the creature coming out of the attic just feels like they don't know what the fuck they're it's like they like all right we killed him off well, I guess we'll just have them wander around and look for him for a while. For most of the movie, it's so bad. It's it, it just it just feels like they ran out of ideas when they were working. Out, okay, we, we nailed this fucking ending. We got it real good. Okay, we got this first kill. I guess I guess it's pretty good. It's fine. And then I don't know. A guy gets dragged out to sea with a fishing line. I don't fucking know. Doesn't matter. Yeah, the ending's good. That's all anyone's gonna remember. No, 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 no. The ending isn't good. The skeleton right, is good. Right. The ending is horseshit. Well, I think I think they, uh, I think they were excited by that ending. I agree with you that it doesn't work. Well, I, I would say this: if the movie was more clearly uh, an interpretive nightmare before that, yeah, then the ending wouldn't feel like such horseshit because you'd be like, "Oh wow, this whole thing was so fucking crazy, and all this weird shit happened." Like when she walked on the ceiling, or when she went through the fucking mirror, or where like gremlins came. You know what I mean? <laughs> If any weird shit had happened till then, her waking up and it was all sort of like part of this time loop, you'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like it would be part of a thing. It's so non sequitur that you just go, oh, God, fuck you. Really? And to say this movie is about like fate is giving the filmmakers too much credit. Like I, I, I do, I do honestly think that they tacked that ending was not just like tacked on because they couldn't figure, figure out how to finish the movie. I do think they were like, and in the end, it'll be a nightmare because they thought they were being clever. But I don't think there's any sort of um, deliberate commentary upon fatalism in this movie. I just think it happened to be like, oh, 
here's her living self, here's her dead self, here's her young self, and that's what little kids are afraid of. That's all That's all that was. Like, fucking uh, Terminator 3 puts more thought into the concept of fatalism than this movie did. And that movie is god-awful. I don't think it's co- coherent, but I do think that's the idea that really got them going, and then they didn't do anything with it. They showed the cat to drive it home that it was the cat. And then they... Uh, slow close-up on this girl pretending to be surprised or scared or yeah. whatever, and it's terrible. It's dumb. She looks malformed. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah. Great, guys. Thanks, Tubi. I guess uh, 20 minutes of us shitting on a movie is not that interesting, but... Uh, and, and to be fair, <laughs> you know what I'm going to do. What's that? It's not as bad as... It's not an oid. It's not as bad as the oids. No. I, I would say it's not even as bad as Project Metal Beast. Project Metal Beast at least had a werewolf, and those things scare me. Sorry. This movie's better than Project Metal Beast. It does have a scary, spooky skeleton creature. Is it significantly better than Project Metal Beast? No, it is not. It is not. And it should be. I just realized, holy fuck, and I hope that someone out there gets this, because I think, oh, Jesus Christ, oh, God. You know what the spooky skeleton creature reminded me of? No. Do you remember the Inhumanoids? Yes. It reminded me of the skeleton creature from the Inhumanoids that was voiced by the guy who did the same voice as um, Starscream and Cobra Commander. Do you fucking remember the episode where he turns the one the one person's girlfriend into into a spooky Inhumanoid? Yes, and it starts shrieking at him in the in in the the Starscream voice. Oh fuck! Okay, this movie actually kind of freaked me out, if only because of the skeleton. You should watch this movie based on the skeleton alone. So if you just want to like fast forward till there's about like ten minutes left and just watch the skeleton creature, that's all you need to see in this movie. I'm gonna go ahead and say there's nothing you need to see in this movie. No, no, don't listen to Liam. Listen to me. It's the skeleton creature. If you had to choose between these two, I'd actually recommend you see uh, Deadly Blessing. Mm, no, the skeleton creature's way scarier. It's not that scary. I think you're overestimating its scariness. No, but that thing jumps out of the fucking out of the attic and starts shrieking at her. It was scary, but it wasn't that scary. Mm, it was scarier than Michael Berryman. Well, that's that's a matter of opinion. Okay. To pat some time, did you know that Michael Berryman was supposed to be in The Crow? No. Yeah. Okay. It really sucks. He he was supposed to play, I believe that his character's name was the Skeleton Cowboy. Yes. Okay. You're wrong. Technically, he is in The Crow. They cut his Yes, 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 out, yes, yes. They yes, shot yes. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about this. Because it's, it's in, the, in yeah, cursed yeah, films. Yeah. Yo, and that makeup looked awesome yes actually. it did I, I i'm so mad they cut him out i thought that would have been cool yeah um speaking of weird things i talked about this on cinepunks but uh did you know that um marlon brando was supposed to be in Deathline? we talked about it on this show was that on this show yeah oh weird yeah man speaking of marlon brando did you know that marlon brando when he was in the island of dr moreau yeah the little person in that movie? Yeah. That was not in the script. He he wanted it. He he showed up on set with that person and was like, build them a small piano. They're in the movie now. Right, right, right. You watch that that documentary with what's his name? Yeah, yeah, the Richard Stanley documentary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that documentary. Single handedly brought back Richard Stanley's career, by the way. Yes. That documentary, and then suddenly he's getting movie offers. Yeah. It's sick. Yeah. I'm into it. So that was Deadly Blessing and The Slayer? I guess next time we're going to pick some more obvious movies. No, no, you're going to pick two uh you're going to pick the next two movies. 
Why I picked these two? Ah, uh, you know you, you know, we talked we talked about it via text. The curtain is being peeled back. You talked about it. We talked about it via text. The next two movies you're going to pick. You know what they're going to be. You sent me a text about it. Fuck, I totally forget. No, you don't. You know what I'm talking about. I'll give you guys a hint. Uh, there is a movie that's coming out. Um, it was. It's been on bloody disgusting. They've been talking. They just released a trailer for it. I think it's called Blackwater. It is being described as. Oh yes, this is what we're doing next. Oh shit. Yes. Friends, we are doing a fucking alacroc, alacroc, double feature, double feature. It's going to be good. I can. So, wait. so basically, a, a friend of the show was that Justin who made that list? I think that was Justin the Liberty, maybe. Yeah, or, yeah. No, no, no. Scott Weinberg. Okay, yeah, yeah. Friend of the show, Scott Weinberg made a list that was basically all the crocodile and gator movies he could think of, and we've covered alligator on that list, and there was we something did, else on that list we covered. We did alligator and. I mean, I think we both enjoyed Crawl. Yeah, true. Yeah, but I think we're well. We're gonna so we're gonna do a double. I don't know which. I think one of the ones we're gonna do is the Australian uh, one that I think is called Dark Water. Mm. And then I don't know what the other one is. Wasn't there one like an Australian crocodile film from a few years ago that was like quote unquote, oh Rogue? It was quote unquote based on a true story. Sure, sure, sure. Quote unquote, sure. unquote. I want to do the older one because uh, it's in that. Um, not quite Hollywood movie. You ever watch that movie? No. It's a movie called documentary called Not Quite Hollywood. That's about the Ozploitation, basically mm. the rise. So in the seventies, there was a rise in Australian cinema that was like two pronged. Part of that was like artsy stuff, you know, like a picnic and hanging rock, whatever, whatever. But at the same time, there was this rise of like genre films, some of which were terrible. These like awful sex comedies that were just like a bummer, you know. <laughs> Uh, but there was also a lot of like, you know, horror films and other genre films. Now, most obviously, you know, is like the Mad Max films. Yeah. But we've also covered Razorback would be part of that. Uh, Dead End Driving. Dead End Driving. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, uh, the guy who did Dead End Driving, what's that guy's Brian Trenchard Smith. Yes. He's considered like the, one of the big people of that exploitation moment. That all of his films were part. You know, Stunt Rock and. BMX Bandits and is Dead Body Melt considered a exploitation film? It might actually be. I don't know. I've, you know, I've never seen Body Melt. Interesting. Uh, anyways, there was uh, one of those movies was this like Gator film, and a bunch of the people in the documentary were like, "This movie's fucking really terrifying," and it was one of the ones that Scott, when he posted this list, was like, "This is very good." So I think we'll, I want to do that one, but then some other probably not alligator 2 because i hear it's terrible yeah. but some other croc move so so that's what we're going to do next and i think after that we haven't determined yet though no. i do I, I would love to plan it out though we should just plan yeah, the next yeah, few yeah. episodes i we there are a bunch I, I will admit there are a bunch of like obvious big horror movies that we still have not done yeah that i guess at some point we should do i mean i've still i i still want to do like a remix like a titan a remix a fucking gigantic remake episode where we do like The Thing and The Blob and Nightmare on Elm Street the remake the 2010 no disgusting horrible movie horrible alright I guess we're done so that was Deadly Blessing and The Slayer thank you so much for listening um, if you want to hear more episodes of this show you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts you can find us on iTunes you can find us on Spotify if you're on iTunes be sure to give us a review and rate, review, subscribe and download download, download you can head to cinepunks.com and find more episodes of this show and many other great shows, including but not limited to Cinepunks, Fat Girl Hacks, Boogs B-Sides, Wine and Cheese, 
Tomb of Ideas, Black Sun Dispatches, Cinema Smorgasbord. Yeah, very good. Cinema Smorgasbord. Um, and you know, I don't know. I got. I, I've. I have to finish an article tonight for this. Just in. Um, we're probably gonna get yelled at about it, but that's fine. Um, if you're interested in becoming a patron, just patreon.com backslash cinepunks. And if you're on Instagram and Twitter, follow us at theharbiz666 on both those platforms. Theharbiz666 on both those platforms. Be sure to check out Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at the underscore LVAC on Instagram and the LVAC on Twitter and xlvacx.com. And until next time, always remember, Black Lives Matter, fuck Minneapolis PD. Justice for Elijah McLean. Bye. All right, Josh, we got to do this ad. We got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. <sighs> All right. We're underachieving overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and adventure by the light of the silver screen. Is non judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitists, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. Anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Tell them we can be found at... You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday. At the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. Ha ha ha!